Only a handful of the millions of people in this vast place are aware that the faith intended for you, Sister Angela, and for George Jackson, and for the numberless prisoners in our concentration camps, for that is what they are, is a fate which about to engulf them too. White lives for forces which rule in this country are no more sacred than black ones, as many and many a student is discovering, as the white American corpse in Vietnam prove. If the American people are unable to contend with their elected leaders for the redemption of their own honor and lives of their own children, we, the blacks, the most rejected of the Western children, can expect very little help at their hands. Which, after all, is nothing new. What the Americans do not realize is that a war between brothers in the same cities, on the same soil, is not a racial war, but a civil war. But the American delusion is not only that their brothers all are white, but that the whites are all their brothers. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. This podcast is co-hosted by the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science. To learn more about the podcast or to find out information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. The opening quote was an excerpt of a letter that James Baldwin wrote to Angela Davis during her imprisonment in 1970. In season two, episode nine, I wanted to take us on a stroll through the current wave of protests, shedding light on a racial strife happening in America today. The abject murder of black Americans has sparked debates, led to protests, and created community members to tear down statues that revered slaveholders. There are two pandemics infecting Black America, COVID-19 and racism. The intimate relationship between the novel coronavirus and the social contours of racism are forcing African diasporic people, like myself, to question the moral compass that has tried to make us unfree. Wherever we live in the world, few Black people can escape the feeling of collective grief that has overwhelmed us after George Floyd, an African-American man from Minneapolis, was murdered by white police officer Derek Chauvin. We see the grief that is laid bare by the public lynching from the widely circulated video showing the last moments of Floyd's life, which provoked an international outcry against American police brutality. However, it also exposed the various acts of racialized state terror and white vigilante violence, as was the case with Breonna Taylor, who was murdered in her bed, Tony McDade, a transgender man, and Ahmad Aubrey, who was slain while he was on a jog. In Europe, people have gathered to express their sympathy and solidarity, opening up questions about how colonialism, racism, police violence, and immigration operate in Europe. I spoke with four Black women, asking them about the recent protests and uprising, as well as what they thought about the future and if they had any hope. First, I spoke with Melody, an Afro-German educator at the protest on the 6th of June, 2020, in Alexanderplatz in Berlin, where thousands of people gathered to stand for Black lives. Then I spoke with Akena, an Igbo heritage woman who was born and raised in the United States. 
After that, I took us across the English Channel where Kate provided insight about the takedown of Edward Colston statue, a Bristol slave trader who profited from the forced migration of 85,000 people from West Africa to the Americas. I returned to Nambuta, a Kenyan-born activist and worker and migrant living in Berlin who put some context and her impressions about this political moment. I'm Melody Makeda Letwin. I'm from Berlin originally, where I also grew up, but then I lived in New York for 15 years or so, and so I call both places my home, New York and Berlin. <laughs> I came out to support black lives. Um, I came out to take a stand against police violence um, against black people. I came out to be in solidarity with my family, my friends in the U.S., as they protest for black lives. Um, a lot of them have been jailed. So, yes, I'm here in solidarity. Do you have any hope for what will happen to eradicate structural racism here in Germany or in the United States? Wow, that's a big question. I want to be hopeful. I think we have to be hopeful, right? Because um, so much is dependent on our future. Um, but I know that we still have a lot of work ahead of us. You know, these structural racism is very deep. And, you know, we see in the U.S. and in Germany also that the, the general society has missed so many opportunities to eradicate it um, and has turned a blind eye again and again. I was just listening to... Um, a piece by Fannie Lou Hamer from 1968 where she was talking about um, how black protesters were accused of being um, violent and, and so forth. And it could have been something she said today, which says a lot about where we are and um, that a lot of the things we fought for, gen or our ancestors fought for generations and generations before have also have been undone in many ways, right? And so. So we have to keep going to maintain and to, and I think a lot about children and young people in my life who are just embarking on like their lives and they want to think about like what is next for me and to know that they're growing into a world that um, basically says, tells them that they're not, their humanity is not worth anything. They're not human beings, right? Um, and so we, so I, I think about them, so I know I have to keep going. <laughs> so, and that makes me hopeful. is not just walking up like they used to do in the past, walking out, you know, shooting a man down or getting maybe two or three hundred people carrying you out and lynching you, but it's it's in a most subtle way. Um, you know, they can let you starve to death, not give you jobs. These are some of the things that's happening right now in Mississippi. See, Mississippi is not actually Mississippi's problem. Mississippi is America's problem. Because if America wanted to do something about what has been going on in Mississippi, it could have stopped by now. It wouldn't have been in the past few years, 40, uh, between 40 and 50 churches bombed and burned. You see, and this, this, you know, this leads me to say, you know, all of the burning and bombing that was done to us and the houses, Nobody never said too much about that, and nothing was done. But let something be burned, you know, by a black man, and then, my God, you know. You see, the flag is, is drenched with our blood. Because, you see, 
so many of our ancestors was killed because we have never accepted slavery. We had to live on it, but we've never wanted it. So we know that this flag is drenched with our blood. So what the young people are saying now, give us a chance to be young men, respected as a man, as we know this country was built on the black backs of black people across this country. And if we don't have it, you ain't gonna have it either, cause we gonna tear it up. That's what they saying. My name is Ekene Okobi. I am a black woman. My parents are Igbo. I hesitate to call, describe myself as Nigerian because I see that as an artificial border and it's also a nationality. I don't have a Nigerian passport. I grew up in the U.S. in San Francisco, California. My thoughts on the recent events in the United States with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and when you see the president's reaction to the protests that are going on right now in support of uh, better federal and state policies, um, controlling law enforcement and their tendency to be violent, deadly violent, uh, you know, to, to show deadly violence against black and brown bodies. It's clear to me at this point that Donald Trump is focused on this agenda of white supremacy, imposing this sense of terror for people who may be undocumented, separating children from their parents at the southern border of the U.S. and putting them in cages and actually at the height of the coronavirus crisis, not releasing people from overcrowded uh, detention centers that were housing a lot of people who had entered the country seeking asylum. So I think the difference now versus 2014 is that there are a lot of what I like to call well-meaning white folk and well-meaning non-black POC who have realized that they are no longer able to take this position of quote-unquote neutrality that we are at a point where you have to take a position one side or the other. So that is heartening in some respect because it's no longer a question, you know, that Black Lives Matter. And what does it mean to fight for Black Lives in Germany? I feel like it's very complicated. I feel like the Berlin Black community is by far one of the most diverse communities I've encountered in an urban lived experience. I think in Germany, what you get is you have a lot of Black people from the U.S., you have a lot of Black people from the U.K., you have Black people from the Americas, like from countries like Brazil and from other Caribbean countries like Jamaica, um, and then you have African immigrants, and then you have Afro-Deutsche. And so there's all these really, really strong identities. Um, and I think it makes me realize being here in Berlin, how difficult it is for black people to sit in a room with each other, particularly if they don't feel like they have a cultural affinity. So, um, 
I feel like a lot of times I travel through when I'm in Berlin and I'm navigating black spaces, there's all these gradations and it's really, it's been rare for me to sort of be in a black space that contains the totality of Berlin's black community because not only do you have sort of the the wild ethnic diversity and national diversity or nationality diversity. You also have um, gender expression diversity and uh, sexual uh, orientation, identity diversity. And so there's these really sort of uh, pockets of uh, identity within the Black community. And um, I find that incredibly exhilarating. But I also think that that presents challenges in terms of organizing. There isn't this strong history of uh, protests, social protests that you have in the US and even in the UK in terms of black communities organizing and demanding recognition or demanding action from elected leaders or from cultural leaders. And uh, you can see that sometimes. Do the solidarity protests in Berlin give me hope about fighting against racism in Europe? Yes and no. And I think the yes part is everybody came together. It was really beautiful to see large groups of people coming together and to see all those different factions of the Black community coming together in one space. I do have concerns. Black people are much more willing to open their spaces to non-Black people and to give the platform to non-Black people than non-Black people, including white people and non-Black POC, are to do the same, are willing to do the same for Black people. And I just see it happen again and again. Um, we are so generous. I feel that Black people are so generous to everyone else but ourselves sometimes. And so we're so willing to share a platform when platforms aren't shared with us. And for that reason, um, we're having a hard time sort of coalescing and understanding how to support each other and how to really talk with each other and how to really sit down and understand what our needs are and organize around our needs. And I think that has a lot to do with this widespread diversity and with this identity that has been projected onto us that we didn't necessarily want to take on because of this whole idea of the adjacency to whiteness sort of um, being a marker for the level of humanity somebody has. So everybody wants to be human. Everybody wants to be seen as human. But right now, blackness is dehumanized in global discourse. I do have hope, but I do think that there's a lot to learn. I went to the Black Lives demo and Alexanderplatz, and I was there for five minutes because I felt incredibly unsafe, and I felt like I didn't know who had organized this demo, and I didn't understand what the rationale was behind the demo and what the action, what actions people were trying to get out of having this demo. And I think that at this point, people are just looking for ways to come together and share healing. Because of the way that we are taught about the civil rights movement in the U.S., which has been the boilerplate for protests, global protests, from the mid-century on because and people think of it as like oh it was just this like landmark movement but I think because we're not allowed to learn black history we don't understand the level of organization and planning that went into the civil rights protests in the U.S. and it's sort of 
the narrative is told as if it was a series of spontaneous actions. So Rosa Parks did not just decide that she was tired. She was in that place at that time to spark off that protest. And I think, again, I think the other issue is it's not just about Black lives. Like, we really need to talk about the patriarchy. We really need to talk about how divisive and destructive the patriarchy is to Black communities when Black women for centuries have been these agents of change. And I think the Montgomery bus boycott is a perfect example of that in that we always see the Montgomery bus boycott as a story, as, as a movement that was led by Martin Luther King Jr. and the Reverend Ralph Abernathy. But in fact, it was the female domestic workers who were sick and tired of being humiliated by bus drivers who decided amongst themselves that they were going to organize this bus boycott. And in fact, those male leaders who later became the face of this protest were trying to convince these women not to do the bus boycott because they felt like it would destabilize the relationship between white business owners and white leadership and the black residents of the city. When it became clear that these women were not going to step down and were not going to stand down and were going to carry on with the planning, then that's when they got on board. And I find it really interesting that the work of those women has now been erased and we then see the men who actually were driving the bus from behind, now taking um, front and center stage. We also don't understand that these people were trained, they were vetted, that they were very carefully selected. And so um, the narrative about the civil rights movement, which is, I think, what has been pushing demonstrations forward based on this narrative, this false narrative that we're taught, is that they were just sort of these uprisings that came out of anger instead of us understanding that they were very carefully planned and that the people participating in those demonstrations were very well trained and very carefully selected. And I think that fits that white supremacist narrative that uh, doesn't want to give blackness credit. And in that planning, the care of the protesters, because people understood that they were putting themselves in great danger, so the care of the participant protesters Every, every effort was made to ensure that their safety was provided for. And so it's actually phenomenal to think that that is actually why more people didn't die. People died in this process and people were severely harmed, injured, but more people didn't die because that care was put into place. And in that way, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And I would say that's the same also for um, a lot of the really carefully planned protests of apartheid in South Africa. There was a lot of thought put into the, conting the contingencies that could arise out of calling attention to this injustice. This is Kate Checker. Um, I'm a mixed-race black woman. Those two things also say something that they can go together and what that means. Um, usually I'm doing comedy in Berlin and I am from the UK and I'm currently back there in the house which I grew up in. I have a lot of thoughts on recent events. Um with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor 
and the protests going in the US and across the world, actually, all over the place. I have a lot of grief. I have a lot of anger. I'm very frustrated. At the same time, I'm very hopeful and I'm feeling a lot of um, elation. I kind of go between that and exhaustion. I think there is a difference now than 2014, but that could be to do with the social grouping I'm in or just how my own development of blackness has been. Of course, I was aware of stuff in 2014, but I think there's a certain energy right now. And of course, that can be partly because everyone's been inside their houses for months, but it does feel like there is something, an energy that's different. A lot of people are coming out for it in the way they didn't before. Fighting for black lives in the UK seems to be, unfortunately, we seem to be at the stage where we've got to convince people um, that racism in the UK exists. Racism in the UK is a very, the British are very good at it. <laughs> and it's very, it's very subtle, it's very covert, and it's very difficult to explain to people or show people that it's happening. I think people seem to be confused as to who taught the United States how to be racist. <laughs> um, and so a lot of it rests in education. A lot of it rests in changing certain people's mindsets, um, changing media, these sorts of conversations. But the solidarity protests, for sure, for instance... I was at Bristol on Sunday at the protest there. Um, it was, there were a lot of emotions flying around that day, but it was so heartening to see the city of Bristol come out for black lives. The city of Bristol, in my experience growing up, has always been quite divided, um, communities have been quite divided, it's got a slave history, it was built on slave labour and they toppled the statue of Colston who was a slave trader and to me that felt like, it felt euphoric, it felt like something was happening in the fight against racism of course, there's going to be debates about it now, but it feels like the politicians, it might just be my own echo chamber, but it feels like the politicians are not where the people are. So, yeah, I'm incredibly hopeful about what is happening now in the sense that I think it will, it is going to change things. I have more people trying to engage with me about this issue than ever before, which also comes with a lot of mixed feelings. <laughs> But yes, I'm hopeful. There is still work to do. And I'm hoping soon we can go and make jokes again. <laughs> I'm Nyambura. I identify as African from Nairobi, Kenya. I currently live in Berlin, working in a social and environmental justice NGO 
the recent events in the U.S. have been very devastating to watch because the U.S. has been in a crisis of racial injustice for a very long time now. Things have been urgent. Black people have been subject to systemic oppression, criminalization, racial profiling, and police killings that have often gone unpunished for decades. So it's no wonder that things have reached a boiling point. The riots and looting that we are seeing now are as a result of a system that has constantly failed its black and poor citizens on every level possible, from healthcare to housing to the justice system, dehumanization of black bodies by law enforcement. We also have to remember that this is happening in a context of a pandemic that has left so many people unemployed. So for this same system to expect its citizens during a civil unrest to show restraint and be peaceful seems unrealistic in my opinion. I think the focus needs to be on the reason for this chaos rather than the means of resistance. New York City will be under a curfew that begins in three seconds. Some of the most prominent streets, anything but quiet tonight, with more peaceful protests, but also more looting throughout Manhattan. The curfew going into effect six seconds ago and lasting till five in the morning. And anyway, things being looted cannot be compared to the lives lost to police violence. The difference between the fight for black lives now and in 2014? Well, now there's a global outrage that puts the criminal justice system on the spot. Whereas in 2014, there were rarely any charges filed for police who murdered black people. So now there's public scrutiny of handling of the cases that we've seen recently, which hopefully shifts the way in which the courts treat cases of racial police brutality. There have also been calls to defund the police. Um, the prison industrial complex is being challenged as to how effective it really is. So the difference is that the movement has gained momentum and is looking towards actual change. Fighting for black lives in Germany for me means bringing past injustices into light. It means challenging racial profiling. It means setting up and funding independent bodies that document police violence stats, which are currently underreported. It means holding the authorities accountable and demanding for justice. As far as solidarity protests in Berlin are concerned in the fight against racism, I think protests have been good for putting pressure since we saw the anti-discrimination law being recently passed. And they're also bringing to light Germany's untalked of problem with racism, which is a step in the right direction. Although, on the other hand, the fight against racism in Europe is a long-term commitment. It has to be, because they have been the least accountable. It needs to continue way after the hype. Existing structures need to be challenged, hard conversations need to be had about its colonial past. We need to discuss about why Namibian skulls from the mass genocide were still being exhibited in Berlin in 2018. We have to address why looted African art is being auctioned in Britain mid-pandemic. 
we need to discuss street names, statues, covert racism, which is much harder to fight than the blatant kind we have seen in the States. So I can only hope that we keep the anti-racism solidarity energy going. Racism is an international problem and a transatlantic creation forged by modern Europeans. The struggle against it may take different forms in different places, but if we want an honest and concrete way to address the violent histories that we have inherited, then one cannot remain ignorant on the ways that it manifests globally. How do we express radical subjectivities that unsettle these discourses of pain and suffering? Despite the massive grieving that Black people are having, there are many lessons and seeds to set ourselves free. In late May 2020, Professor Gay Teresa Johnson was on an online panel with Angela Davis, Robin D.G. Kelly, and among others entitled The Fire This Time, where she stated, quote, Because of all the work that came before us, we are here. There is a different calculus that is predicated on our humanity, one that does not doubt our presence because we live and breathe, one that makes us deserve to be here, end quote. What is beautiful about this moment is that there is a mutual and widespread recognition that people are calling into question institutions that protected the few. The uprisings have shown that people have new ideas about what freedom is, and now that the world is watching Black-led, queer-led, women-led struggle, we have to contend with the fact that we need new imaginaries. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you're listening to the Decolonization in Action podcast. This episode featured socially distant voices in Berlin, Germany, and in Bristol, England. I would like to express my gratitude to Melody, Akene, Kate, and Mambuta for contributing their insights about this very difficult moment. As always, there is a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or to find out more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also visit us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. We wanted to continue to express our solidarity with the scholars, activists, artists, migrants, and queer people who are putting decolonization into action. Thank you for joining us.